Let's bow for prayer. Father, as we continue our study in the book of 2 Corinthians, we ask for your guidance and direction. We pray, Lord, that you help us to think through this passage, to think through the words, the phrases, the categories that Paul is speaking about. Pray, Father, you help us to be able to relate these things to the world in which we live in, that we'll have understanding and wisdom. The Father, we may live successfully, that we may flourish spiritually and live out your will in our lives. Thank you again for preserving your word for us. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. 2 Corinthians 10, beginning in verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey. So I want to begin with asking this question that is, I think, raised from the reading of this text, and that is, what is spiritual warfare? I'll answer that in about 15 minutes. <laughs> Just so you know, I will, as I start meandering, I haven't lost my way. We will get to the answer to that in just a moment. And it is a very important question. I do believe that it's largely misunderstood. Uh, when people talk about spiritual warfare, a lot of times what comes to mind is rebuking demons, reclaiming territory from Satan, sometimes binding Satan. These practices and more uh, are, I believe, troublesome. They're not biblical. In fact, they're not even the notion that spiritual warfare involves because this idea that it involves direct interaction against demons I don't think is biblical either. So in our text today, which is where we're going to begin, it, it may seem odd due to the fact that, as you know by now, Paul has been dealing with the so-called super apostles that have been slandering and defaming him. And Paul even gives a much more direct and clear description of these individuals. In chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, he says this, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. We touched on this last week. To go back to uh, verse 6, Paul says that he was ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So even though we, know, we understand there's this group that's come in, they have been bragging about what qualifies them to be the spiritual leaders in the church. They, they have been defaming Paul. They, they want people to become disloyal to Paul, to become loyal to them. They want power. They want authority. They want, they want to have a say in what's going on. Paul has been talking about them, not in the way they talk about Paul. He's been talking about the things they teach. He talks about what, what is being meant by what they're going after. He's been trying to encourage them. He wants them to know that even though he does have real authority, it's not about him. It's about the word of God and what God wants him to be. But as they do these things, he also recognizes that it can lead to some very serious problems. And so he continues, because he's forced to in this situation, to compare himself to these false teachers. But as he continues to do so, he is not doing this and, again, coming out and saying, I am better than they are. That's not what his focus is. He is different than they are, absolutely. And he wants to make sure they understand how it is that he is different. 
The punishment that Paul had in mind really would, be, would have been a wholesale rejection of these men, which I think came, became pretty clear when I read that passage from chapter 11. He wants a wholesale rejection of their methods as well as their attacks on Paul. So in the text that we're looking at now, beginning in verse 3, Paul is pointing out the difference between his methodology and theirs, which was fleshly and worldly, which is interesting because they were accusing him of being fleshly and worldly. And he says, in reality, they are the ones that are fleshly and worldly. And I think that we'll see that uh, as we move through this passage. So in verse 4, he says, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. So what Paul means by that is these things are not of human design. We have heavenly or spiritual weapons. They are given by God for the advancement of the truth, not for the defense of territory. So the temptation that we all face is to approach our life, our walk, our ministry, or even our warfare from a purely human vantage point. And Paul wants to make sure that that is not what they're going to do, and that is not what he is doing. In fact, there's three things to notice as we move through this. Number one, he makes it clear, he states categorically that the weapons that are being used in this are spiritual. They're not fleshly. They are mighty in God, meaning they have divine power, and they do destroy strongholds. Again, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Now, there's not a lot of specific information there. Many may want to know specifically what are these weapons. Before I answer that question, we need to look into a few of the things first. What are we fighting? What are these strongholds that he mentions? Now, some might say, looking at, as you look, kind of look at what's going on in the world today, that for Christians, these strongholds, maybe it's the ACLU, or maybe it's the LGBTQ lobby. I know I'm supposed to add more letters to that, but nonetheless. Uh, maybe it's abortion doctors. Others may say, no, it's demonic strongholds, or generational curses, or demonic hierarchies. Well, look at verse 5. He says, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. The New American Standard reads, we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And the Amplified, it says, inasmuch as we refute arguments and theories and reasonings and every proud and lofty thing that sets itself up against the true knowledge of God, and we lead every thought and purpose away captive into the obedience of Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. So what I think is clear from this passage is the strongholds or the fortresses are not physical. They're not demonic mantras, they're not demonic curses, they are mental strongholds. The phrase, every lofty thing, is basically emphasizing the pride of these mental strongholds. Every lofty thing pictures the towers that would encompass a stronghold or a fortress. And you know, you've seen walled cities that they've had in the 1800s, and there are these, usually on the corners or somewhere, there are these various towers. And those towers were set up there for the defense of the city. And so that's the idea of these lofty things. Putting these thoughts together, these mental strongholds are against the knowledge of God. One author said this, specifically, these strongholds are the reasonings of the human heart. Prideful, self-reliant, man-centered philosophies, and speculations. Now keep in mind that what we're dealing with here, remember, 
uh, our meta-narrative. There are certain things we all know to be true. It's how we explain the world. Much of that is based on Genesis. In fact, all of it would be based on Genesis. And what I'm going to read to you from Romans, you're very familiar with, but we want to make sure we always keep this in our mind when we're thinking about the world, when we think about spiritual warfare and what's going on. It really enhances and informs our understanding of things and how we interpret things. Romans 1, verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. So even though mankind, the unbelieving aspect of mankind, they don't hear an audible voice, but man is surrounded by God's creation. God's creation ceaselessly testifies to the Creator. We don't always think in terms of that, but we need to remind ourselves that every single unbeliever you speak to knows that God exists. They know that. Even if they claim to be an atheist, they actually know that God exists. And the evidence of that is continuous. It, it, it's not like something where they're, well, they, it's not where someone says, well, when I was six or seven, I was kind of aware of some things, but it's been kind of silent ever since. No, that's, that's not the way that it works. Man's been suppressing it, he's been ignoring it, but it's always there. In fact, that's how man responds to this uh, testimony, is by suppressing that knowledge. So instead of submitting to the truth, he erects mental strongholds which keep them hostage in unbelief. So that's, that's, what, that's what man does, is man suppresses the truth, he then comes up with his own philosophies, his own truth, so to speak, his way of understanding the world, the way, maybe the way he wants the world to be or however you want to label it. And he then kind of builds this stronghold in his mind and in essence then protects him from the knowledge of God. He keeps it at bay and he is then living in the midst of this conception that he has in his mind. Basically, man wants to be the center of his own self-sufficient universe. So in his unregenerate state, he doesn't want to turn from his sin and he doesn't want to submit to a sovereign God. Remember, we've said this before that when it comes to man's basic problem, when you're explaining the gospel to any individual, when you're talking about Christ, remember that his number one problem is he is in open rebellion to God and doesn't want to hear the truth. He loves his sin and he is embracing his sin and he doesn't want to be disturbed. And when it comes to his secondary problem, go to back to number one. And when it comes to man's third problem, go back to number one. That is what is at the center of the difficulty that we are having as individuals. In fact, when you read through 1 Corinthians, it becomes very clear that the unregenerate man is insulated from the knowledge of God by his mental strongholds, and because of that, he finds the preaching of the cross foolishness. In fact, in partnership with the evil one, again, he erects all kinds of foolish speculations and lofty thoughts against the truth of God. Like what? That would be evolution, atheism, moral relativism, political correctness, rationalism, humanism, on and on. And in fact, even if you, you could throw this in there in the mix, that would even be things like Christian nationalism and those types of things which infiltrate the church. It's interesting, this past, uh, well, actually a couple weeks ago, I finished reading a book by a, a man who is a, he's a scientist and a professor. Um, he's got a bunch of degrees from colleges I could never even uh, I couldn't even read what's in their library. It's so much beyond me. 
uh, but he is not a, he's not a Christian, he's not a believer, um, and he wrote a book basically journaling his move away from belief in evolution and Darwinism. And he says it's purely scientific. He says we need to ask these questions, and he recognizes in there, along the way, he talks about how when he would ask certain questions or when you would go in certain areas, how the academic world or scientific world in general kind of responds to that. And he kind of has taken a step back and recognizes that they're being intellectually dishonest. And he says, that, he, says he doesn't know why that doesn't bother them because it's bothering him. And I just found the book to be really very compelling uh, in reading what this man is saying. Of course, the whole time you're reading, he's saying, dude, it's like it's right in front of you. He even mentions that there has to be some kind of intelligent designer. That's, that's, the, that's the only place logic leads you. Logic leads you nowhere else. And so you're reading the book, you're like, and? And? You know, you're on the right track, bud. Keep going. And, you know, and I guess he doesn't want to go there for whatever the reason. Uh, and that's not the point of his book because he's not a believer. Uh, but it's interesting that it's becoming more and more clear that that is really nothing more than what we've always said it was, which is it's a theory. And it just doesn't hold any water at all. But man's primary reason, mankind in general, his primary reason in embracing that is because it is a story that explains our origins and maybe many other things apart from God. Man doesn't want God to be a part of his thinking. So man willingly believes anything than the truth. So in answering to the first question that I raised at the beginning, what is spiritual warfare? Spiritual warfare is a truth war. It's very important for us to recognize. It is a truth war that immediately sets itself against probably 80 to 90% of all the books that are published now about spiritual warfare. Because what they get into is fighting demons and curses and generational things and getting back territory, reclaiming territory from Satan and all this kind of stuff. Which is just, again, it's, just, it's not biblical. And it's not what the Bible is talking about. And it is a waste of time. We fight lies by advancing truth. When truth advances, God is glorified. When it comes to the weapons that God has given us, well, since we are fighting the reasonings and the thoughts and the speculations of error that's erected in the hearts of men, the weapon is the word of God. Now, I'll be honest with you, for many people in general, maybe for many Christians, when they hear that, there, maybe it's their initial feeling. I don't know, maybe it's a combination of feeling and thought. But their initial thought or feeling is, is that's a boring answer. That's a boring answer. Because it sounds much more exciting to go downtown and reclaim territory from Satan. It sounds much more exciting to, you know, I guess, conjure up demons and then defeat them. Go against generational curses or this or that. When we say it's the word of God, we go, man, I'm not I'm sure what that means. Well, actually, we can figure out a lot of what that means, but that is the weapon. And it's the weapon that we are to cherish and to know. In fact, I would say that many have said that the gospel and the word of God are the means of waging true spiritual warfare, P 
period. Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign. Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. What we believe clearly is not unintelligent. It is not illogical. It is not irrational. It is a truth war. And it has always been that, and it always will be. As long as Satan can dissuade us from believing the truth, we remain what? Lost. As long as he can continue to convince believers that you cannot entirely trust the word of God, we remain weak. We are unable to fight and engage in this warfare. When we gather together and we start trying to, you know, defeat demonic curses and gain back territory, I think he laughs. There's nothing for him to do. We're already distracted from the real problem and the real weapon that we're to be using. Preaching the word of God, teaching the word of God, and again, by the way, when you have a conversation with an individual, if you have a spiritual conversation with a non-believer or a believer, almost always there is some teaching going on. You're sharing what you know. If you're with a believer, they may be sharing what they know, and you're discussing it and you're thinking about it. When you're talking about spiritual things to a non-believer, you are teaching. You're not behind a podium where you are the official teacher. But as you give advice or as you talk about what you believe to be true and all the various things that you can have in a discussion, you are teaching them the truth of the Word of God. When they bring up their objections, which become, after a while, I believe very clear to be based on lies or untruths or half-truths, what do we do? We point that out. You, you may even say, that's not exactly true. When someone says, we, for example, just like a simple thing, well, we know evolution is true all the way. Well, actually, we, we don't know that. And we, what do we want to get into? A little bit of truth. Whatever, whatever philosophy they want to get into. What, what, will, what are we thinking? What, are we, what is our approach? That's not true. This is true. This is the counter-argument, or this is the truth. What you're saying is untrue. They're believing the wrong thing. They're, what they're believing is false. They may be trying to convince you that their way is the truth. And thus, we go back and forth, and we have the Word of God to stand on. And again, for them, the best they can come up with is that the preaching of the cross to them sounds foolish. Again, in verse 5, back in 2 Corinthians, he says, we destroy what? Arguments. And every lofty thing, every lofty thing, opinion, that's raised against what? The knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to obey Christ. So true spiritual warfare, again, is not a battle for territory. It is a battle for the truth, and it is a battle for the mind. It's interesting, some books have been written on this, but it's interesting how the written word 
interacts with the human brain. God preserved his written word for us. There is a uniqueness in the interaction of the human brain, the way that it is created by God, the way that we are wired to interact with that which is written. We, have, we don't have the, the ability to do this at times when we're maybe watching a teaching video, but when you're reading, there are times that you can actually freeze one thought and think about it while you continue to read. Now, I'm not talking about multitasking. I, that's, that's not what you're doing. It's all engaged in what you're doing. But we have the ability to do that. And then we have the ability to go back and rehash those things in our mind, to look at them from various angles, which is what God wants us to do. And so we need to recognize that. So true spiritual warfare, then, is not a battle for territory. It's a battle for the truth. It's a battle for the mind. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. What I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. So the point of that is he says that these believers are not, and he anyway, he is not ignorant of the, of the designs, of the manipulative aspects or um, ways that Satan works. We're not ignorant of that. Again, the Amplifier says, if you forgive anyone anything, I too forgive that one. And what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sakes in the presence and with the approval of Christ. Why? To keep Satan from getting the advantage over us. For we are not ignorant of his wiles and intentions. Intentions. So Paul is concerned that no advantage is gained over us by Satan. And the issue that he's dealing with, this individual who was involved in sin and he was, um, in essence, excommunicated for sin, has repented. And so Paul wants them to reaffirm their love to this individual, to welcome him back into the fellowship. Because he doesn't want the individual to be lost through despairs, uh, through despair. Because if he's lost through despair, we could be furnishing Satan with the weapon by our repulsive harshness to the one who is penitent. And so he wants us to be aware of how Satan works and what Satan does. And again, all this is centered then on understanding the truth and applying the truth of the word of God and going forward in that way. Again, Paul says that we are not ignorant of the way the devil works. We do need to be equipped in the same way. We need to be aware of the way he works. Uh, I think in most systematic theologies and books that you read, you know, there is a section on Satan. Now, normally it's not really all that big. I mean, it, it's, it's exhaustive. But it's not like we have to spend years and years studying Satan. The Bible is pretty clear. This is what Satan does. This is what he is. And the Bible is our source for understanding how he works. There's at least nine terms or names that are used to describe Satan. All of them are descriptive. I will go through them rather rapidly. Uh, I think they are down there in your notes. Again, he's called Satan, meaning adversary. He opposes God, his plans and purposes. Most of us are fully aware of that. We absolutely know that's exactly what Satan does. He's also called the devil. He is one who engages in slander. So anything have to do with slanders, pretty much that's where it comes from. Uh, is from the evil one. Whether we're slandering God, slandering Christ, or slandering others, that's the idea that's involved in the way he works and what, in the way he operates. Serpent. When the Bible talks about serpent, it speaks of his craftiness, his subtleness, and beguiling nature. That tells us that he's not always very straightforward. Um, in fact, 
in, in case in your mind you're picturing the devil wearing a red jumpsuit with horns and carrying a pitchfork, he probably doesn't dress like that. Because we'd see him coming. How does he dress? Like a preacher. How does he dress? Like your neighbor. How does he dress? Like you. How does he do things? Oh, watch some TV. It's all there. The, he's also called the prince of the power of the air. That reveals the power and the scope of his influence. So one of the things we want to make sure we never do is never underestimate the enemy. Okay, he's real. It, it doesn't mean everything is satanic. You know, it's not like, I think there are some of you that are older like I am. You know, Flip Wilson was famous for saying the devil made me do it, except he'd say it in a falsetto, falsetto uh, during his skits. But the devil doesn't make us do much of anything. All right, the Bible tells us pretty clear what draws us away to sin. It's our own hearts. The devil, the devil may be there enticing us, but he's not making you and me do anything. But we don't want to underestimate his power and his influence. He is called the God of this world. That reveals that he does have temporary control of our world system. And he blinds unbelievers to the truth. 1 John 5, 19. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And so whether we're talking politics or Whatever it happens to be, and we see the, maybe the evil movement or intention of, of institutions, or when we recognize those things, we should not be surprised. That, that's, that is of the devil. It's not a conspiracy theory. That doesn't mean the devil is there. You know, some people, well, the devil's sitting in the White House. Well, I don't think he's sitting there either. All right? He's not omnipresent, and I don't think that's where he is. But the bottom line is, is that the whole world is under his power, under his control. And we need to recognize that. He is called the tempter. That pretty much tells us in large part what his work is. And then seventhly, he is called the dragon, which reveals that the, the destructiveness of his ways. It is about destruction. You know, there's a word that's pernicious that's used uh, about the devil and sin at times. And the idea behind being pernicious is basically the idea that you just want to bring others down with you. That's it. There's no real reason. It's not, it's not to get you to my side. It's just to bring, bring, down, bring down the other side. Try to corrupt others. You know, when one good kid is with a couple of his friends and they're evil and they want him to participate with them, why do they want to do that? Usually it's not some big super motive. They just want him to participate with their wrongdoing. For whatever the reason. It's just that's what being pernicious is. He's called the evil one, which is his nature. And then, of course, he is the father of lies. And that reveals one of the main methods that he uses. So that's why it's a war for truth. That's why we have to be armed with an understanding of the Word of God. It's not just that you just read the Word of God and want to be casually influenced by it. We do want to read the Word of God, and we do want to be influenced by it, but reading is only one aspect of our interaction with the Scripture. We do want to study it. And most individuals, at least for many Christians, if you've been a Christian for a while, you recognize that there are different ways and different, in a sense, levels of studying the Scripture. But nonetheless, there are times that we do want to go much deeper. We want to, you know, analyze words and phrases and all those kinds of things because there's so much that is there. And the more that we know, the wiser we are going to be. We're going to be able to, to live encouraged because of the whole world really is against us. We are engaged in spiritual warfare. But again, and we will see this much more clearly in the coming weeks, it's not about you marching around your house praying certain things so that the devil stays away from you because that's not going to work 
and usually it's a waste of time based on what you may have in your house. Recognize this. All anti-God, worldly thinking is satanically inspired. Okay? All anti-God, worldly thinking is satanically inspired. Satan is amazingly effective at making lies believable. And that is the lies in the world. That is lies at times within Christianity. He is amazing at this. He's amazing at making and effective at making sin desirable. It's amazing that he's able to make us think that temptation is unavoidable. And that error sometimes becomes irresistible. Satan is always at work. Remember, he's not a human being. He doesn't need to sleep. He has his dominions that are following him. This isn't to make you again think that somehow there's a demon out there uh, on our church roof hiding behind the steeple and he's waiting to pounce on you if you're unaware of things. That idea comes from a novel. That's not in the Bible. But also know this. He is seeking to influence you. He uses many different methods to do that. And the lies that we sometimes hear that we're exposed to is one of the main ways that we are influenced. That's why Romans tells us to no longer be conformed to this world. He says that because we are being conformed to the world. This, this battle is always taking place. That's why as believers, again, we emphasize at least a regular interaction with the Word of God. That needs to be a regular part of our life so we can continue to what? Think well. Think God's thoughts after Him. Remaining immersed in the truth of the Word of God. Because the Word of God, again, is not something that's only limited to only the idea that you need to be saved. It encompasses every aspect of life. The gospel, sometimes we think the gospel only is about now you believe, now you're saved and going to heaven, that's it. It encompasses every aspect of life. And so as we interact with the Word of God, we see that, we recognize that, we learn that, and we continue to, to engage ourselves in the tool that God has given us, that the Spirit of God who indwells us interacts with to bring about these ongoing changes that are necessary in our hearts and minds. And that's why we do that. And all the Word of God is there for us to do that. He is so effective that the only hope we have of being able to spot his lies is to be intimately, intimately familiar with the truth. One pastor said this, we must be so well versed in the truth, so faithful to the truth, and such a doer of the truth, that he will not be able to deceive us with his lies. Apart from the word of God, we are sitting ducks. That's why we depend upon each other, depend upon God in prayer, pray for each other, and why it seems everything that we do as believers is centered on the Word of God. Some think that everything we do as believers is centered around food. Food has a lot to do with what we do, but it really is the spiritual food of the Word of God that it all is centered around, and there's a reason for that. And so as we move forward in seeking to understand a few more details about spiritual warfare, about some of the lies that have infiltrated the church, that have infiltrated Christianity, and comparing it to the scripture, we need to be wholly committed to what the Bible says. That needs to be our starting point. I can honestly tell you that I don't know everything in the Bible, maybe as I should. 
I can't apply the Bible to every single aspect of life on the planet. My brain isn't that big. But my commitment is this. No matter what the Bible says, I actually already believe it. I'm already committed to it. I want everything I think and say and even feel to be evaluated by the Word of God. I want that. When it's revealed that I am thinking the wrong way or feeling the wrong way or doing the wrong thing, I want that to be revealed. I want to be convicted. I'm already committed to this. And and so as I study and as I read, I want to learn this, not so that I can be right and win an argument. I want to be pleasing to God in every way. I want my life to flourish spiritually. I want to be able to positively, in a very strong Christian spiritual way, everyone I meet, in particular, my grandchildren and my children. And you know, all my children are adults, but I still want to be able to influence them in that way. The only way I can be assured of that is that I'm continually growing and understanding and learning what the Word of God says. I don't want to be their stumbling block. I want to be the one that has helped them to overcome the stumbling blocks in the world, whether I am there with them or not. And the only way that's going to happen, because I can't even, I can't even in my wildest imaginations predict all the obstacles and stumbling blocks that are going to come their way, but I can prepare them for it. I can prepare them for it by knowing this and living out the Word of God, living under the influence of the gospel of Jesus Christ, being really in every way truly spiritual. Which again, just so you know, that doesn't mean that you wear a long brown robe with the hood and a 20-pound silver or golden cross and you carry a 60-pound Bible wherever you go and you chant hymns. Or they mean you live your normal everyday life as a Christian and you think about everything as a Christian and you evaluate everything as a Christian. And you respond to everything as a Christian, as one who is informed and is living out the Word of God. And we're all in the learning process because we all make mistakes in those areas, but we are seeking to do that better and to do that together. And doing that, God, in spite of us, but in a glorious way, will use us in the lives of others. And our joy will continue to grow and be much more complete. We should be and will be the envy of many other people. Not because of what we buy, not because of what we possess, not because of anything that we own, not because of our great personality, because of who we possess, which is Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much again for Paul and all these things that he is talking about in this really very uh, specific problem that this church is having. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to recognize these categories that Paul is talking about, these concepts that he is raising, uh, the issue of spiritual warfare and, and the strongholds and not living in a worldly, fleshly way and being able to fight battles in a way that honors you. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to, to absorb these things and to be able to evaluate these things and submit ourselves to what your word says. Father, we all have enough trouble in the world the way that it is. And we know that we are in need of your help. And Father, you've given to us really everything we need, as it says in 2 Peter, everything we need for life and godliness has been given to us in the knowledge of his son, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that we will embrace that with our whole heart, mind, and soul, and all of our strength. Help us, Father, because we're weak. 
Even though we want this, we do waver. We sometimes become lazy. We sometimes go off in the wrong direction. And so we ask, Lord, that you would help us in every way. We thank you for that. And Father, as always, we know that there are some who, well, they, they, they've heard about you, and they have a Bible. They really haven't read it much. They, they think in very limited ways. And, and what they need is you in every way. They need to recognize that this is not where we live life the way we want to, and then we just add in the gospel, but that we repent of everything in our life and embrace only the gospel and only Christ. So I pray, Lord, you help them to see their need of Christ and that this is not some kind of a brainwashing or cultic type of thing, but, Lord, this is what sets us free from the bondage that they are already in. And those of us who have been free from this bondage, we thank you for freeing us. And so, Father, we ask that you would renew our spirit and renew our commitment to your word and to know truth. The Father, we may live by the truth and that we may be protected from the many lies and error that is out there. We do thank you and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.